The fourth layer of indoctrination that we're going to look at is, we believe, a different gospel. Biblical salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But in Catholic salvation, it is faith plus. And let me just, if I could, put quotation marks around the word faith, because it's not individual faith. When a baby is baptized, we know the baby cannot believe anything at that point, seven days old. So it's the faith of the parents or the faith of the godparents. We need to instruct Catholics that God does not have any grandchildren. You must come to faith in Christ yourself in order to be saved. So it's faith plus sacraments. These parentheses, numbers in parentheses are paragraph numbers of the catechism. So this is official teaching. They must receive sacraments in order to be saved. They must participate in the sacrifice of the mass under penalty of mortal sin. Paragraph 1405. They must believe in purgatory to purge away their sins. They must do penance in order to have their sins forgiven. They must believe indulgences can remit temporal punishment for sin. They must be baptized and they must keep the law. Galatians 3 says anyone who attempts to keep the law places himself under a curse if they're trying to keep the law for salvation. And they must do good works in order to be justified. Can you see the graphic on the screen? It's hard work to get to heaven as a Catholic. They are burdened down by all of these requirements. And by the way, my dear wife, who's the second greatest blessing in my life, she's the one that's created all of these slides. And I hope they really draw you into the message and makes you uh, understand them more clearly. Biblical salvation says if you believe anything else, you believed in, in vain. You must believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. To add anything to the gospel of Christ insults our Savior. And then Paul goes so far as to issue a damning curse on anyone who would dare preach another gospel and we will look at that tomorrow morning. Those who preach any other gospel have a twisted view of Scripture. Only prideful, self-serving, and foolish men would dare to subvert the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God who created them. Yet at nearly every point, the biblical teaching about man's sin, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and on and on are misrepresented by the Roman Catholic Church. I was invited up to a small German town in North Texas, Munster, Texas, to equip the body of Christ to be effective witnesses to Catholics. And after spending all day Saturday, I woke up with Jane the next morning. We went to a cafe in the town before I would preach the Sunday morning service. And the town was about 90% Catholic. So we were having breakfast and I looked over the restaurant, I, th I saw 50 people, and I did the math, I figured 90%, 45 are Catholic. So as we started to leave the restaurant to go across the street for the Sunday morning service, something came over me. And I stopped and I picked up a spoon and I started banging it on the glass. The whole restaurant became quiet. I said, now that I have your attention, I want you to know I've come all the way from Dallas 
to show you how you can have your sins completely forgiven and be reconciled to God. And I'm going to give that message across the street at the Baptist Church, and all of you are welcome to come. We walked out of that restaurant. My wife looked at me. She said, no problem doing it in Munster, but if you ever do it in Dallas, I will kill you. (laughs) Well, the fact that I'm still alive, you know I haven't done it in Dallas. We need to give the gospel every way we can. I mean, you never know when the Lord's going to prompt you to share the glorious gospel of our grace, of of God's grace. So Paul issues an anathema on anyone who distorts the gospel. He wrote, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Have we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now remember, Paul is addressing the Judaizers who came into the churches of Galatia, and they only added one requirement to the gospel of grace. If you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe in Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. And Paul issued a damning curse on them. You just saw all the requirements the Catholic Church has added to the gospel. Imagine what the Apostle Paul would say to the Catholic Church today. They are the modern-day Judaizers because they have distorted the gospel beyond what even the Judaizers did 2,000 years ago. Paul drove his stake in the ground. He knew what was at stake. And you and I need to contend earnestly for the gospel because if we don't, what hope does the next generation have? We must be very defensive of protecting the gospel of grace. Unfortunately, so many people today cannot discern the true gospel from a false gospel. We must defend the gospel as Paul did. He said, we did not yield in subjection to them, the false brethren, for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. We can only wonder why more of our Christian leaders are not denouncing those who distort the gospel. Is it because they want to be man-pleasers? Paul addressed them in Galatians 1 verse 10. He said, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We must always remember that to tolerate any false gospel does not please our Lord Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity to share the glorious gospel of grace with a former Roman Catholic nun. And I remember sharing with her after I gave her the gospel and gave her a gospel track. She went home that evening. First, she was very upset with me, very angry at me. But again, the importance of sharing the gospel in written form after you give it to someone. She went home that night and she began reading the gospel tracts that I gave her and got on her knees and cried out to the Lord to save her. So when I saw her the next day, she told me that she had trusted Christ alone as her Savior. But then she told me that she's dying of cancer and she didn't have much longer to live. 
She said, will you baptize me? I said, absolutely. And so I baptized her, and then over the next several months, we began preparing for her funeral. I'll never forget visiting her in the hospice. She was so anxious to go and meet her creator and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. After being a nun all of her life, she told me, you know, I just wished I'd have known this sooner. Here we had 200 nuns in our convent. We only had one Bible, but no one ever opened it. Because see, the Catholic Church discourages you from reading the Bible. It's too difficult to understand, they say. And so as we were preparing for her funeral, she said, I know all of my Catholic family members are going to come, and I want them to hear the, the, the gospel of Christ from my lips. And so we spent a lot of time putting together her testimony. And so when I was doing her funeral, I'll never forget the music, the hymns that we sang were so God-glorifying and Christ-exalting. And then after the hymns, I got up and I shared the testimony of Carlin for her family members and all those that were gathered there. And I remember there was another Roman Catholic family member that I think initially resisted the glorious gospel of grace, but later on we found out that they too came to saving faith. But I just thought what a great privilege it was that God not only used me as an instrument to share the gospel with her, but also to baptize her in the name of Christ and then to do her funeral. And we had some tennis friends that we got to know very closely over the years, and they were outside of Christ and Jane happened to share with the, the wife that Mike had given a funeral and it was just the most uplifting funeral that we've ever been to. And she said, funerals are uplifting? And so she asked if she could hear the message. And so as a result of sharing the gospel through Carlin's lips that afternoon and the praise music that went forth, our tennis friend also heard the message as well. So we've got great privileges as the ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. We never know the opportunity that he lays before us. And so we have to keep sowing the imperishable seed of God's word. When you look at the gospel of Christ, it's clearly defined in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. We see that it's only about one person. Mary's name is not mentioned. Your name is not mentioned. My name is not mentioned. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal God incarnate, his virgin birth and his perfect life. One person and two events, the atoning death of Jesus Christ and burial of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection from the dead. Paul defines the gospel here. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. God's eternal glory, God's eternal son left the glory of heaven to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin to take on human flesh. He lived a life in perfect obedience to God's law, then was crucified as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy divine justice for sinners. He bore man's sin. He suffered God's wrath. He died in man's place, was raised on the third day 
to show that divine justice was satisfied. What a glorious Savior we have in Christ Jesus. Another opportunity that the Lord prompted me to give the gospel. We had just done a conference up in Wisconsin. I was totally exhausted after three days. We got on the plane, still on the tarmac, and there's a businessman on board barking out commands to his secretary on the phone, speaking so loud that people five rows up and five rows back could hear everything. And I was just getting more and more annoyed. I just wanted to lay back and sleep. And then I realized, you know what? I've got business to conduct as well. (laughs) So I pulled out my cell phone and I pretended I was talking to someone on the other end. And I was giving the glorious gospel of Christ. About five five minutes into it, my wife elbows me and says, you better hope your phone doesn't start ringing. (laughs) We do have a gospel to proclaim, don't we? Remember, the gospel is not only an invitation to receive Christ, but it's also a message to believe Christ and a command to obey Christ. His first command was repent and believe the gospel. When you look at Catholic salvation, they are utterly dependent upon the priest. It's the priest who baptizes for regeneration and justification. It's the priest who hears confession and absolves sin. It's the priest who offers the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist. It's the priest who imparts the Holy Spirit in confirmation. It's the priest who gives last rites. And even after the Catholic dies, he's still utterly dependent upon the priest to get them out of a place called purgatory. He offers the sacrifice of the Mass. If only Catholics knew there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Priests are unqualified because what's the role of a mediator? It's to come between two warring parties. Before we were saved, our relationship with God was one of enmity and hostility. But through the mediation of Christ Jesus, he changed that relationship to one of peace and harmony reconciled to God forever through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, God's perfect man and man's perfect God. If only Catholics would read their Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only priest sinners need. He's the perfect high priest who offered himself the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God who demands perfection. And then he cried out, it is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, interceding for those that he died for. The five solas were a response to the Vatican's teaching on the gospel. If you wanted to be saved as a Catholic, it was grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, scripture plus tradition. Glory was going to God as well as Mary and the saints. That's not not all they added to the gospel. It's Christ's blood plus purgatory, Christ's atonement plus indulgences, Christ's sacrifice on the cross plus the sacrifice of the mass. We looked at the opposing views on justification last night, but just as a quick summary, Roman Catholics believe it's by grace plus merit. The Bible says justification is by grace alone. Catholics believe it's a process whereby righteousness is infused. 
The Bible says, no, it's instantaneous because righteousness is imputed at the very moment the repentant sinner places his faith in Christ. Roman Catholics believe the duration of justification is temporal. It is lost by mortal sin. The Bible says the duration is eternal. It's never, ever undone by sin. Roman Catholics say God justifies those who are good. The Bible says, no, God justifies the ungodly. So remember, when you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. No one can be right with God if they're wrong on justification. Rome's doctrine of justification is antithetical to the biblical doctrine. One is by grace, the other is by merit. One offers divine assurance, the other only offers a false hope. When the antithesis is compromised, the very meaning and purpose of the gospel is lost. Well, Roman Catholicism loves to camp out on the epistle of James. One of their favorite verses is, faith without works is dead. They love to challenge us with James 2.17. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. How do we respond to that? We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. James is saying that living faith will produce good works. Another way to look at this is that faith and works are said to be like a two coupon ticket to heaven. The coupon of works by itself is not good enough for passage into heaven. The coupon of faith is not valid if it is detached from works. They must go hand in hand. Our passport to heaven is by faith alone, but that faith produces a changed life. There will be evidence of a changed life by the works done after we are born again as new creatures in Christ. When we look at the relationship between faith and works, a good illustration of this is that faith is the root and good works are the fruit. If the root, which is faith, is dead or spurious, there will be no fruit. Also, the best works without faith are dead and are useless because they do not have the root of faith. Only by the fruit of living faith can we produce works that are pleasing to God. And do you know what produces the root? It is the imperishable seed of God's word. That's what the apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. The word of God is the imperishable seed. So you and I need to be Johnny Appleseeds. We need to sow the imperishable seed of God's word wherever we go. We don't know where the good soil is, but there is a promise. When that seed falls on good soil, God promises to produce life. So I hope all of you are encouraged to sow the imperishable seed of God's word wherever you go. Another way to look at faith and works, the Roman Catholic view they say faith plus works produces justification. The biblical view is faith produces justification plus works. Notice the terms faith, works, and justification 
are present in both formulas. The critical difference is the order of terms in each equation. In the Roman Catholic formula, works are the necessary precondition for justification. In the biblical view, works are the necessary fruit of justification. And I think Paul makes this so clear in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Listen again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that the one so that no one may boast. Here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith alone, but once we are saved, we do the good works God has prepared for us to walk in. The timing of our works and the motivation of our works is so important. We must communicate this to Catholics. They are doing good works in order to be saved. We are doing good works because we have been saved out of love and gratitude for our Lord Jesus Christ, dying as a substitute in our place, satisfying divine justice. Justification is the greatest exchange in human history. By faith, Christ takes all of my sin. And what does he give me in return? His perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse in all the scripture, because it reveals the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him the greatest exchange any human being could ever experience. My sin for his righteousness. God treated Jesus as if he lived my life so that he could treat me as if I lived the life of Christ. The Bible declares Christians are saved by God's grace, not of works, through faith in Christ alone, from sin's punishment and power because of God's love and mercy. Don't you love Romans 5, 8? God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We're saved only on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And we're saved at the very moment of faith now please memorize Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 because this really destroys the Roman Catholic plan of salvation. When you heard the message of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing your eternal salvation. So what took place? You heard the message, you believed it, and you're instantly sealed with the Holy Spirit. No time for good works, no time for sacraments, no time for indulgences. You heard the message and you believed it. We're saved throughout all eternity. Hebrews 5.9. What a glorious gospel we have to share. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. The Roman Catholic Church does not teach the doctrine of assurance of salvation. It preaches and teaches against it. Why? As long as you are uncertain, 
You are dependent upon the church and you are dependent upon the priest. We need to encourage Catholics to exchange their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know the ultimate goal of every religion under the sun is to control its people. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Free from the control of false religion. Free from the power of sin. If you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 3, I want to share with you the resume of the Apostle Paul. If anyone had reason to boast in his religion, it was the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's a great verse to share with Roman Catholics because what did Paul do? He exchanged his religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He considered everything he had done as a Hebrew of Hebrews dumb for knowing Christ Jesus and his righteousness. And so we need to instruct Roman Catholics, if you want to be saved, you need to do what Paul did. Exchange your religion of worthless deeds and rituals and sacraments for the righteousness of Christ and the divine justice he satisfied for you. Rome's false gospel rejects the supremacy of God's word. We've seen that. It rejects the sufficiency of God's son. It rejects the sovereignty of God's grace. You might ask, well, how do they do that? Well, we know that it's the sovereign grace of God that brings forth life to those who are dead in their sin. In John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. He talks about the spirit being like the wind. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Roman Catholic false gospel rejects the severity of God's punishment. How do they do that? By incorporating purgatory, temporal punishment for sin. The false gospel of Rome rejects the security of God's children. There is no security in the Roman Catholic religion. With all these rejections of the fundamental truths of the gospel, you would think more evangelical pastors would recognize the Roman Catholic Church as an apostate form of religion that needs to be evangelized. Remember, we can be wrong about a lot of things in this life and still survive, but if we are wrong about the gospel, we will pay for that mistake throughout all eternity. 
That's why we produce a gospel track entitled, Where Will You Spend Eternity? I left it with the man that I shared the gospel with over breakfast this morning. He said he wouldn't be there tomorrow morning, so I wanted him to leave with the gospel so that he could ponder the glorious truths of what Christ accomplished. Well, the fifth point of difference, we have a different view of Mary. Listen to paragraph 494 of the Catechism. Without a single sin to restrain her, she became, don't miss this, the cause of salvation for herself and the whole human race. Pure blasphemy. But that's not all. Paragraph 969, as mediatrix, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. This is the Roman Catholic view of Mary. Rome teaches that Mary is not only the mother of Christ, but the mother of the church. She was conceived without original sin, according to Catholic teaching, the Immaculate Conception. At the end of her earthly life, she was taking up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. That's the dogma of the Immaculate Assumption. She is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. This is the Catholic Mary. Here you can see a page out of the Baltimore Catechism. The sacraments give power to life, it says, and you can see that the grace comes from the side of Christ into the priest through the hands of Mary and it's dispensed through Roman Catholics. The channels of grace go through the hands of Mary she is said to be the mediatrix of all grace. Listen to the words of John MacArthur. I shared this last night, but it's worth repeating. Catholicism is a false system. It's not the church of Christ. It's the church of Antichrist. If, if you follow Catholic theology, you'll go to hell. I'm not saying that to be unkind, but to be truthful. Being truthful is the only way to be kind. People need to come out of that system it's a system that exalts Mary in a system of paganism mingled with pseudo-Christianity. Standing together for the gospel means standing together against ecumenical movements that assault and betray the exclusivity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most importantly, we also have a different view of sin. And this is important for you to know because when you witness to Catholics, you have to recognize they don't believe that all sins are mortal. Catholicism declares that venial sins do not cause death, only temporal punishment. And that's according to paragraph 1863 of the Catechism. This is the doctrine of demons. It embraces Satan's first lie in the garden. Remember what he told Eve, you surely shall not die if you break God's command. So the Catholic Church has taken the lie of the devil in the garden and perpetuated that lie with its doctrine of venial sins. 
Scripture declares all sins are mortal. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins will surely die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. False teachers who promote Satan's lies as if they were God's truth are the worst kind of deceivers. And that is what the Roman Catholic Church has done. They have two types of sin. Mortal sins, such as adultery or murder or missing church on Sunday. And then pretty much the lesser sins are called venial sins, and they do not cause death. Must we ever ask how much God hates sin? From biblical history, we can see God's holy hatred of sin. His wrath was poured out against the wickedness of men during the flood. He blotted out all but eight people from the face of the earth. His wrath was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah in the form of fire and brimstone from heaven. His wrath was poured out on his only son when he bore the sins of many. So often you hear people say, well, my God is a God of love. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. And I point them to the cross. If God did not spare his own son who became sin for us, what hope do you have of being spared from God's wrath? Well, I call this the trilogy of deception. The first lie of the devil in the garden Venial sins do not cause death. So guess what? The Catholic Church has to come up with a place where Catholics who die in venial sins go. And so they came up with a place called purgatory where their sins are purified by fire. Well, now that they have a place where Catholics go after they die, now they need another lie to get them out. So they created the lie of indulgences Indulgences, by the official definition of the Catholic Church, is the remission of temporal punishment for sin. The trilogy of deception, it all started with the doctrine of the devil and the garden. Venial sins that produce purgatory and then indulgences. You can see how the fatal lie of the devil and the garden has morphed into two additional lies that keep Catholics blinded from the truth of the gospel. The lie of temporal punishment for venial sins led to purgatory, a place where their sins are purged away by fire. Why is this important when we witness to Catholics? Because John MacArthur calls purgatory the safety net for Catholics. They don't believe they've done anything serious enough to warrant mortal sin, so they expect to die and go to this place of temporal punishment. So we must show them from Scripture, all sin is mortal. The wages of sin is death. By the way, this lie of indulgences led to big money for the Catholic Church. Some say it's the richest institution on the face of the earth. We know that St. Peter's Basilica was built by the sale of indulgences, the selling of God's blessing through the form of indulgences. I was doing a conference up in Emporia, Kansas, and after equipping the church all day Saturday, we found out that there was a Roman Catholic mass going on at five o'clock. So we all got up and went down to the Catholic church 
And oftentimes when I travel, I call ahead and see if the priest has time to meet when I come to his town. But this priest was too busy to meet with me. As we walk into the church, I see the red light on the confessional signifying the priest was inside hearing confession. So I turned to the elder of the church and my wife, I said, pray for me, I'm going to confession. <laughs> so I walked in there and Steve, it was different from when we grew up. There was you know, a veil when we were there and the priest couldn't see you, but there he was sitting in a chair waiting on me, no veil. I said, I don't even know where to begin. It's been over 30 years since my last confession. He said, well, don't you worry. When you leave here, I'll forgive all of your sins. And then he said, why has it been 30 years? I said, I've been reading the Bible. <laughs> he said, well, how has that kept you from the confessional? He said, well, what I have been reading in the Bible goes against what I was taught as a Catholic. He said, give me an example. I said, well, in John 19.30, Jesus cried out in victory, it is finished. So why do you continue on an altar with Jesus finished on the cross? He said, give me another example. <laughs> I said, well, in 1 John 1.7, it says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So why do we need purgatory? He said, I can see this is going to take longer than I thought. Why don't you call me on Monday and we'll continue the conversation. So I flew back to Dallas and I called him. By then he knew why we were there. He said, why were you proselytizing us? I said, we weren't, we were evangelizing you. We we're giving the gospel because as I shared with you in the confessional, the Catholic gospel is a different gospel. And so I started sharing the gospel with him and we got about five minutes into it and he said, you know what? Nothing you can say will ever change my mind. I was born a Catholic and I'm gonna die a Catholic. And I said, not according to the Bible, you were born a sinner and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe the gospel. You know what? I was successful because whether or not a person comes to saving faith in Christ is not our responsibility. We're called to take the message of the gospel from the pages of scripture to the person's ear. It's God's responsibility to take it from their ear to the heart. And this Roman Catholic priest heard the gospel as much as I could share with him. And I was successful in giving it to him. And you too are successful every time you give the gospel with clarity and completion. Leave the results to God. Pray that the seeds that you sowed will find fertile soil. What's the Catholic rebuttal? They misapply this verse in a futile attempt to prove their venial sins do not cause death. The verse I'm referring to is 1 John 5:16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So how do you respond to this? Clearly, John is referring to a sin that doesn't lead to death. He's referring to sins committed by believers who have eternal life and can never die again spiritually. There's nowhere in the Bible where someone who's born again ever dies again spiritually. 
because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. So any sin committed by a believer after he's been born again does not lead to death. A believer's sin does not cause death because of Romans 4.8. We read that this morning. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's why we don't die again after we've been born again. We're eternally secure in Christ. Well, lastly, we have a different path to eternity. The six differences lead to the ultimate, a different path to eternity. Jesus talked about these two paths in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 15. And I shared with you, my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest, and whenever he'd come to town, we would always open the Bible and plead with him to believe God's word over the teachings and traditions of his religion. And I remember one night he was so frustrated because he had no response to what the word of God was saying. He threw up his hands and said, Mike, how can one billion Catholics be wrong? I said, can I let Jesus answer that for you? And I turned to Matthew 7. I said, read this. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Just because there's a billion people marching proudly toward hell's gates does not mean it's the right way. Jesus goes on, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Can you see the context here? You have these two gates. In front of the narrow gate are wolves in sheep's clothing saying, it's not here, it's there. And they're redirecting people to the broad gate. And that's why in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, you must strive to enter the narrow gate because you've got fierce opposition standing in front of the narrow gate. If you want to know how to be saved, you have to diligently search the scriptures so that you will know who's a false teacher and who's a true teacher. There's no middle ground. Everyone is either on one way or another. My last semester at seminary, I really studied these two paths to eternity. One is guided by pure truth. The other by truth mixed with air. And isn't that how Satan operates? No one's going to believe an outright lie. So what does Satan do? He mixes truth with error. It's more easy to swallow that way. We must test the spirits, as John said in 1 John 4, 6. One follows Jesus, the true shepherd. The other follows false shepherds. One is by undeserved grace. The other by works. One road is traveled by the humble and merciful who know they deserve hell. The other by the proud and self-righteous who think they deserve heaven. One is entered because of divine accomplishment. The other through human achievement. 
One group will arrive expectantly because of God's promises. 1 John 5.13, John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So when we arrive in heaven, we will arrive there expectantly because of the promise and the power of God. The other will be shocked when they arrive at their final destination. The most terrifying words anyone could ever hear is Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. He said, there are many who call me Lord. And there are many who will say to me on the last day, didn't we do works in your name? And Jesus tells them, you never departed from iniquity. There was no repentance. And you cannot get to heaven by your good works. Even though they called him Lord, he will say, depart from me. So I put together these two paths to eternity, and these are available in our gospel track, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. And I can tell you for 33 years now, every time I've shared this with Catholics, they have agreed, this is the road I'm on. They believe that they're born destined for hell, but they believe water baptism puts them on the road to heaven. When they commit those venial sins, they lose some of their right standing before God. When they commit a mortal sin, they're now destined for hell. They need to be re-justified by doing good works and receiving the sacraments, trying to produce enough merit to qualify them for heaven. You can see there's a treasury there. It's actually invisible. But in Paragraph 1471 to 79, we see that those who die with more than enough merit, their extra merit goes into this treasury. The Pope promises to dispense these merits to those who are suffering in purgatory, but he refuses to do so unless they're purchased. So at the end of a Catholic's life, he's gone through this cycle hundreds of times, never knowing where he stands And at the end of his life, he'll stand before the Lord Jesus and hear the most terrifying words when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. They're cast into the eternal lake of fire. My dear brothers and sisters, this is why I have such a great compassion for Catholics. I traveled this road for 35 years. I'd still be on it if it weren't for the grace of God, the word of God, the spirit of God. We need to point Catholics to the narrow road that leads to life. (coughs) And it's not water baptism, is it? It's faith in Christ. And at that very moment, we're justified with the promise there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the evil deeds of the 